Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Chala Ramanaya Namaskaram. Um, uh, last time I spoke about the Mangalam verse of Ulrunapadu Anabandam, and this time I'm going to talk about the first three verses. That is, the, the first five verses are all on the subject of satsanga. Um, the, these are all verses that Bhagavan translated on various occasions from various different sources. Um, and what they have in common is the subject of satsanga. Sat means uh, being, and sangha means association. So satsanga is association from with being. As Bhagavan explained, the, since we ourselves are, um, are sat, the best satsanga is atmasanga. In other words, being being with ourselves, in other words, attending to ourselves and subsiding back into the heart and being as we actually are. That is the best satsanga. But so long as our mind is going outwards, the association with those with with Anyani, that is with with in our case with Bhagavan, who is who is the very embodiment of sat that is because he they um he is he is sat manifested in human form in order to turn our attention back within and uh, in order to make us know ourselves as we actually are as pure satchit so um association with bhagavan is is also good satsanga. Association with Bhagavan doesn't just mean being in his physical presence. Uh, thinking about him is also good satsanga. In fact, Bhagavan indicated rather than that is better than just being in the presence of Banyani, um, thinking of Banyani, that is having mental association, is more efficacious. For example, there's one story we can I, I can tell of something that happened um during Bhagavan's uh when during Bhagavan's bodily lifetime. That is there was a, a couple from North India who after retirement had um because they were devoted to Bhagavan, they come and uh, settled in Tiruvannamalai, and they were staying in a house nearby the ashram. And they used to be, come to uh, and, and spend time every day in Bhagavan's hall. At one time, uh, some relatives of theirs from North India came to stay. So because uh, relatives were staying, the, the lady needed to stay behind and uh, cook for them and take care of all their needs. So they stayed for a few days and then they went away. After they had left, she she came to Bhagavan and said, oh, oh Bhagavan, for, um, I, I'm sorry for several days I wasn't able to come because I was attending to the needs of my relatives. Um, I, I felt so bad about it not being able to come here. And Bhagavan said, better that you were there thinking of here than here thinking of there. What he indicates thereby is but more efficacious than merely being in the bodily presence, the physical presence of Bhagavan is having our mind dwelling upon him. So um, thinking of Bhagavan, keeping him always in our thoughts, in our heart, that is better satsanga than just being in his physical presence. And 
because Bhagavan came not just uh, for us to worship him, he came to give us teachings to show us the the um, show us how to eradicate ego and thereby be as we always actually are. He's keeping our mind dwelling on that is Bhagavan is is manifest in a very special way in his own teachings. So keeping our mind dwelling on his teachings is also good satsanga because by thinking of his teachings, that encourages us to put them into practice, to turn back within and to be with ourselves. In other words, to to uh, to return to the real satsanga, which can be enjoyed only in our heart. So there is satsanga in various different forms. Also for devotees of Bhagavan, because um, Bhagavan's guru was Arunachala, and Arunachala is a, the very embodiment of sat in the form of a hill. Being in the presence of Arunachala, going around the hill, these are also good forms of satsanga. So there are various forms of satsanga. But the whole point of satsanga is to draw us more and more within um, in order to be established as as sat, which is what we always actually are. Sat means, as I say, pure being or pure pure existence, which is the same as chit, which is pure, pure awareness. In other words, sat is what is always shining in our heart as I am, as our own being. So I will start with the, the first verse. This first verse is a verse that Bhagavan translated from um, a verse written by Adi Shankara. That is, there's a, um, a very popular song written by Adi Shankara. Uh, it's popularly known as Bhajja Govindam. Its actual, its its real title is Moha Mudgara. Mo, Moha Mudgara means hammer on delusion. But because the refrain is Bhajja Govindam, Bhajja Govindam, it's popularly known as Bhajja Govindam. And the story behind this um, this song, I, I, um, I think I'm correct in saying this, I may not have all the details correct, but during his Digvijaya, while he was traveling around India, um, uh, Adi Shankara once met an old um, Brahmin who was, um, who was, trying to learn by heart the rules of Sanskrit grammar. And he thought to himself, what this, this old man, what is the use for him learning all this grammar at his age? So he composed this song in order to wake him up and to, um, to not to waste his time just trying to master grammar, to develop bhakti in his heart. That is why the um, the refrain of the song is Bhajja Govindam. That means uh, sing or sing in praise of or worship Govinda. Govinda means uh, Krishna. Um, in one of the verses, I think it's, if I remember correctly, it's verse nine, but I could be wrong. But anyway, the verse is a, a very well known verse. The verse is Sat Sangatve Nis Sangatvam Nis Sangatve Nirmohatvam Nirmohatvam Nis Chalatatve Nis Chalatatve Jiva Mukti. That basically what that means is uh, by Sat Sangha you gain uh, Nis Sangha. Nis Sangha means uh, detachment. Um, uh, by uh, Nis Sangha you gain. Um, 
You gain freedom from delusion. Uh, by um, by um, by freedom from delusion, you attain the state of nischala, uh, that is uh, of the motionless state. In other words, the state of our of just being as we actually are. Jiva Mukti by by just being as we are by remaining in that motionless state of just being, we attain uh, Jiva Mukti liberation um, during the lifetime of this very body. That's the idea of a verse. So Bhagavan adapted this verse as this Tamil verse. What he says in in the Tamil verse is, um, I'll read the verse. Uh, sentence by sentence and explain the meaning. The first sentence is sat in a in a katinal sabu ahalam. what that means is by a, literally it means by association with sat or pure being, um attachment will leave. The implication here that the word uh inakum means um fitting well together, compatibility, friendship, agreement, or association. Inakatinal means by inakam, by, by such uh, fitting together. So it, it, it implies here association. It means the same as sangha. In effect, it means the same as sangha in Sanskrit. By association with sat. Um, and sat here, the, the, the basic meaning of sat is pure being. I am. But it can also refer to uh, those who abide as pure being, in other words, jnanis. And um, uh, sabu ahalom means attachment will uh, leave. That is, that here it's referring to out, outer attachment, the, the, the more external forms of attachment, um, attachment to all other things will leave or depart. Um, <clears throat> And then the next sentence is Sabu Ahala Chittatin Sabu Sideyome. What that means is when attachment leaves, uh, attachment of the mind will perish. Um, uh, here, uh, when attachment leaves, means when the outer attachment leaves, the attachment of the mind, that refers to the inner attachments. Um, it implies in this context uh, the inclination to seek happiness in um, in objects or phenomena, uh, which are the subtle seeds that sprout of the outer attachments. Um, this distinction that Bhagavan makes here between the attachment and the attachments of the mind, we can we can understand this by considering someone who who takes sannyasa that is who 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 adopts an outward life of uh, uh of renunciation it's one thing to uh, renounce all the desire all the outward attachments but though we can we can change our, the color of our cloth we can change our name we can formally become a, a sannyasi that doesn't get rid of the vasanas in our heart. So the purpose of taking sannyasa is to work on the inner attachments. So it's possible to renounce the outward attachments while still having those 
inclinations towards those attachments. So the inclination towards those attachments are the vishaya vasanas. So that is what Bhagavan is uh, implies here by the chittatin uh, sabu, the attachments of the mind. It's the, the subtle the vasanas, which are the subtle seeds that give rise to the outward, to the grosser forms of desires and attachments and so on. Um, so in Sanskrit, Adi Shankara had talked about nirmohat, the, the freedom from moha, from delusion. That delusion is nothing but these vishaya vasanas, the subtle seeds of attachment in our own heart. Um, uh, and then the next sentence is um, Chittasabu Atra Alevu Il Adil Atra. That means um, those in who in whom mental attachment have ceased has ceased have ceased in that which is not moving. That is when 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 the the vasanas are destroyed. The vasanas of the ego's army, so to speak. That is, ego cannot um, rise, stand, or flourish without, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Rulu grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. So the very nature of ego is to grasp forms. Form means anything other than itself, because ego itself is a fan is a formless demon or phantom. So, but whatever ego grasps are things other than itself. Only without grasping things other than itself, ego cannot rise, or we cannot rise as ego, or stand as ego, or flourish. So, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish, grasping form. So, the vasanas are the in ego's inclinations to grasp form. So, without those inclinations, ego cannot stand on its on, on its own. So, um, by satsanga, by, uh, we, we, the outward attachments go, but the outward attachments reduce, the seeds that give rise to those outward attachments, the vasanas decrease. As the vasanas decrease, we finally, uh, ego itself will cease uh, in that which is not moving. That which is not moving is our own real nature. Uh, sat itself, the, the pure being that we actually are. So um, this verse is showing how satsanga works gradually to remove our outward attachment, then the seeds will give rise to the outward attachment, and thereby undermines ego, so ego eventually will subside and remain established in its source, which is sat itself. That is the implication. Uh, then, then the next sentence is Jiva Mukti Petra. That is, after saying that they will cease in that which is unmoving, he then says they will attain Jiva Mukti. Jiva Mukti means um, uh, li living liberation, literally, it, or that's how it's generally understood. It means liberation while the body is still alive. In his um, in his Tamil explanation for this verse, Sadhuam gives uh, another meaning for Jiva Mukti, liberation from Jiva, in other words, liberation from our from the from ego, from the separate individuality. Um, 
uh, that that's not the the conventional meaning, but that's an, also a nice alternative meaning for liberation because the state of jiva mukti, liber, uh, living liberation, the li what is living, it's referring to the body. But in the view of the jiva mukta, there is no body at all. It's only in the view in the, that in the view of the jnani, there is only, as Bhagavan often used to say, jnana me jnani, jnana alone is the jnani. Jnana means pure awareness. Jnani means what knows pure awareness. What can know pure awareness other than pure awareness? That is, pure awareness cannot be an object of knowledge. So what can know pure awareness is only pure awareness itself. So the jnani, the knower of pure awareness, is pure awareness itself. In the view of pure awareness, there is no, there is no mind or body or world or anything. There is just pure awareness, because pure awareness is itself a sat. It, it alone is what actually exists. Um, so the the distinction between jivan mukti, liberation uh, while the body is living, and videha mukti, uh, that is the, the liberation that's attained after the death of the body, um, that distinction is there only in the view of the onlooker. Um, in the view of Vinyani, um, uh, when ego ceases to exist, everything else ceases to exist. Bo uh, mind, body, world, all cease to exist because they all exist only in the view of ego. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludhanapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Everything here includes all objects of phenomena. So it includes mind, body, world, everything. So it, all these exist only in the view of ourself as ego. Since liberation is the, uh, is the annihilation of ego, in the absence of ego, there can be no distinction between Jiva Mukti and Videha Mukti because there's no body at all. So, but Jiva Mukti, though it is not real from the perspective of uh, uh, Jnani, from the perspective of the Agnani, it is very real. For example, Bhagavan was a Jiva Mukta. That is why, because he had attained Mukti, liberation at the age of 16, and he lived for 54 years after that, he was able to give us these teachings. So from our perspective, from the perspective of Vyagnani, in whose view the body and world are real, Jiva Mukti is, is a real state, but it's only in the view of the, the distinction between Jiva Mukti and Videha Mukti, the liberation while the body is living, and um, the, the, the final liberation that results after the death of the body, this distinction is true only in the view of the Agnani, not in the view of the Jnani. That's why Sadhuam gave a, an alternative, unconventional meaning for Jiva Mukti, but uh, Jiva Mukti means liberation from Jiva, from ego. Um, <clears throat> so that is Bhagavan's um, adaptation of the uh, um, of the Sanskrit verse by Adi Shankara. But Bhagavan then adds one more uh, sentence at the end of this verse, um, which is the drawing out the implication of, of uh, 
of what Shankara sang in his, in his original verse, Bhagavan ends by saying, um, Ava in a campaign, that means cherish their association. Uh, there, there here means those, those um, Jiva Muktas, Nyanis, that is, uh, who are, even while in our view they seem to be a person, seem to be, Bhagavan seem to be a person, but actually what Bhagavan actually is, is pure Satchit, pure being awareness. He is our own reality. What we actually, our own real nature is what appeared outwardly in the form of Bhagavan in order to turn us within. So the outward form of Bhagavan is not the real form of Bhagavan. The real form of Bhagavan is Satchit, our own, the, uh, our own uh, being, our fundamental awareness, I am, that is the true form of Bhagavan. So to see Bhagavan as he actually is, to associate with him as he actually is, we have to be as he is. In other words, we have to be as we actually are. Um, so this is the, the first verse. Um, the next verse is likewise um, a translation from Sanskrit, but I can't, I, 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 quite a number of the verses of Uludranapdu Anabandam, they are translation of Sanskrit verses which were, are very well known, but nobody knows who originally composed them. They don't belong to any particular text, or if they did belong to any particular text, the text have been lost. Only just a, um, they 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 survive as just stray verses, um, and most of these verses are very popular verses, um, which is why Bhagavan um, Bhagavan uh, came across them. Um, on, this, on various occasions, and in particular contexts, he translated them. So, um, in this second verse, what he says is, um, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> okay, I'll, I'll read the, the verse in Tamil first, because whereas that previous verse was a series of short sentences, this is all uh, one long sentence. Um, so, um, I'll, I'll read the verse and then I'll go through it clause by clause. Sadhu Uruvu Sara Ullam Sa Teli Vicharatal Edu Paramam Padam Ingu Edumo Odum Adu Bodakanal Nul Poralal Punyatal Pinam oru sadakatal sara onadu al. This I, I'll just explain the, the 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 structure of this sentence because this is a very typical um, sentence structure in Tamil and Sanskrit, um, but, but it's not a. a a sentence we we can adapt this sentence structure into English, but it is not it's not a usual sentence structure. But it comes quite often in um, in Tamil and Sanskrit, and there are a number of verses in Uludhunapdu Anabandham that have this structure. Um, the first clause is a clause beginning with what, and the the subsequent clause is a clause beginning with that. 
well, in English, we have to begin it with what and that. In, in it need not begin with that, but the, the main the main um, subject of the first clause is what. The main subject of the second clause is that. So, the what is referred to in the first clause as what is what is referred to in this main clause as that. So the first clause of this uh, sentence of this verse is Sadhu Uruvu Sara Ulum Sa Telibu Vicharital Edu Paramam Padam Ingu Edomo. That means what exalted state one achieves here by clear investigation, Vichara, which rises in the heart when one takes refuge in sadhu association. Um, <clears throat> the exalted state referred to here is the, the supreme state of knowing and being what one actually is. And we can achieve that state only by clear vichara. Vichara means investigation. It's referring to self-investigation. And the, uh, the, then there's a relative clause which arises in the heart when one takes refuge in sadhu association. Sadhu association means association with a sadhu. And in this context, sadhu means uh, a jnani, one who knows and abides as sat, pure being. That is, the, the word sadhu means a benevolent person. It, that is, it's used in a variety of different contexts, but generally a sadhu means a benevolent person, a, a gentle person, a, a good person. Um, but in this context, and um, also in some of the subsequent verses, Bhagavan is using sad, the word sadhu to refer to jnanis, those, those who, who know and remain as sat, as they actually are. Um, so by association with sadhus, if we take refuge in association with sadhus, that is the, the first word, the verse begins with the word sadhu uruvu, that means association with a sadhu. Uh, uh, sara means when one takes refuge. Ullum sa vichara means by the clear vichara, but rises in the heart when one takes refuge um, in the association with a sadhu. And as I explained earlier, association with a sadhu doesn't, doesn't only mean living in the physical presence of a sadhu. So many people lived in the presence of Bhagavan, but how much benefit they derive from living in the presence of Bhagavan depends on how dedicated they were to following his teachings. Bhagavan's teachings are all about subsiding within. So the benefit one gains from um, association with a sadhu depends on one's own maturity. That, uh, that is one analogy that is often given. Um, uh, if you've got, if you've got um, a banana a plant, banana plants are, are thick, um, um, have thick stems which are full of uh, moisture. So if you put such a, a banana stem on a fire, it will take a long time to burn. Whereas if you put um, if you put dry wood, it will burn quicker, and if you put um, if you put um, 
uh, charcoal, it will burn even quicker. And if you put gunpowder, it'll burn immediately. So it's according to the how much benefit we get from association with a sadhu depends upon our receptivity. That is, the, the, the sadhu, the jnani, is the fire of jnana. But how much benefit we get from it depends upon how receptive we are. And just merely living in the physical presence of that, that anyone who lives in the physical presence of a jnani, of, of Bhagavan or any such jnani, uh, will certainly be benefited. But that benefit may not show immediately. There is a verse in Guru Vachika Kovai in which Bhagavan uh, refers to those who, who, though they spend time in the presence of Vinyani, though they live their whole life in the presence of Vinyani, they some derive, all derive benefit, but some the benefit is not, is, doesn't show immediately. And for that, Bhagavan gives an analogy. He says, just like the 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 shadow but always uh remains close to the foot of uh, of a lamppost those there are those who because of their immaturity though they remain all their life till they grow old in the company of uh, of banyani they their ignorance is not removed so the the association with the physical presence of vinyani is the grossest form of satsanga that's not the only form of satsanga so when bhagavan talks here about sadhu association he means not just living in bhagavan's physical presence thinking of him with love um, thinking of his teachings trying to put his teachings into practice that is far better um association with Bhagavan than merely being in his physical presence. Though, of course, being in Bhagavan's physical presence is a great blessing. It's a great blessing for anyone, but um, the, that it's a blessing only to the extent to which we, we have love for him in our heart and we try to uh, and have love for him includes having love for his teachings because Bhagavan didn't come just to be a, a god to be worshipped. I mean, for many devotees of Bhagavan, Bhagavan is just like a god. They pray to him for the removal of their difficulties, for, for fulfillment of their desires and so on. That's fine. I mean, Bhagavan is, is also God, but that's not the real purpose why he appeared in this form. He appeared in this form as guru. And to get the benefit from Guru, we need to follow the path he has shown. So the real benefit we can get from Bhagavan is not just treating him as a god and praying to him for the fulfillment of our desires, the removal of our difficulties and so on. The real benefit we get is by being devoted to his teaching, being devoted to the path that he has shown us and trying our best to to understand it and to put it into practice, put his teachings into practice. So that is the best uh, association with with um, with the sadhu. So if we are trying to understand and apply Bhagavan's teachings in our life, then we are really taking associate taking refuge in sadhu association. And as a result of that, taking refuge in that sadhu association that is association with Bhagavan and his teachings, uh, 
clear vichara will arise in our heart, as Bhagavan indicates here. In other words, the, 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 the presence of Bhagavan in our life, not just a physical presence, but, but, but to the extent to which our life is centered around Bhagavan and his teachings, to that extent will a clarity arise in our heart, which will draw us within to investigate who am I. And by investigating uh, uh, who am I, we will attain uh, a state. Uh, that uh, that uh, uh, what he describes here as paramam padam, the state which is supreme. In other words, the supreme state, and that supreme state, or, or param can mean supreme. It can mean exalted also. So the exalted state, namely the, su the, the supreme state of knowing and being what we actually are. So that is the true fruit of satsanga. So, um, as I say, this first clause, the the main word, in, well, the, the the main subject of this clause is what, what supreme state uh, is attained here by clear vichara, but arises in one's heart when one takes refuge in sadhu association. So, what does Bhagavan have to say about that state? In the next clause, he begin uh, the, the word that. Um, that is, in this clause, the, the word for what is edu. In the next clause, the word for that is that. And he puts one word before that, odumadu. Odum means which is uh, praised or extolled, um, because it's the ultimate state. So that which is extolled uh, is not possible to achieve um, Bodha Canal. That means by a teacher. Uh, here, um, here in this context, um, oh, well, sorry, when he says that, he's referring to that extolled state. When he says it's extolled, he means it's extolled by the Vedas and other texts as the ultimate goal. That is not possible to achieve um, by a bodhika. That means by that in this context, that implied studying under the guidance of a teacher of religious or spiritual precepts. Bodhikan here means one who teaches uh, religious or spiritual uh, precepts. In other words, a very learned uh, person, maybe a very pious person, but that's not the same as uh, merely by studying under the guidance of a good, pious, uh, learned person we cannot, it's very difficult to achieve this state. It's, it's not possible to achieve this state. Um, so Bodha Canal, and then he says, uh, Nul Poralal, by, uh, by the meaning of texts. But that means, that implies by learning the meaning of texts. So by studying many, by studying the Prasadana Treya of Vedanta, that's the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra, and the Bhagavad Gita, um, by uh, studying the commentaries on them in order to learn the meaning of such texts, we don't thereby attain this state. Um, and then the next uh, one he says is punyatal. Punyatal means by uh, by virtuous actions. So what, however many virtuous actions we do, we cannot attain this state. Um, and then he says... Um, Pinnum oru sadakanal sara onadu. 
pinnum orum sadkana means um uh, moreover or uh, or uh, moreover by any means or uh, yeah um, pinnum means um in this context means moreover and oru sadhakana mean by by any means um or that, that implies in this context by any other means whatsoever so in order to attain this supreme state the only means is by we can attain it only by clear vichara and that clear vichara will arise in our heart by uh, association with by, by taking refuge in association with a jnani and as i say association with the jnani means associating with that is cherishing love with him in for him in our heart keeping him in our heart keeping him in our thoughts and trying to to uh follow and live up to the teachings that he has given us then only will this clear vichara arise in our heart and thereby only and only by that clear vichara can that supreme state be attained um so this this verse is a uh, bhagavan is very much emphasizing here well firstly he emphasizes the importance of vichara as the only means to attain that and that vichara to gain that vichara that that vichara will naturally arise in our heart if we take refuge in sadhu association and that state that is attained by that uh, vichara cannot be attained by any other means by however much you uh, study under the under a learned teacher learn all the meaning of the text do all sorts of good actions or any other means whatsoever you cannot attain this state the only way is by vichara and that vichara will rise in our heart to the extent to which we take refuge in we surrender ourselves to um association with bhagavan in other words to the extent to which we dedicate our life does that mean just outwardly inwardly we need to dedicate we need to dedicate our mind and heart to bhagavan we need to um he needs to be the focus of our life he, that is he and his teachings that is what our that has to be the central focus in our life then only we're truly taking refuge in association with him and then only will that clear vichara will arise uh, in our heart by which we will attain that supreme state that exalted state of just knowing and being what we actually are so this is a very very beautiful verse um <clears throat> and then the third verse that i'm going to talk about today again this is a translation um this this verse we know the circumstances under which it was uh composed when bhagavan was um was um living in virupakshi cave again i i don't always remember the details of stories very correctly but the gist of the story is i think Chamal or one of the other uh lady devotees um who uh one day she came to bhagavan in um in virupakshi cave and um it, uh, food was offered and she said no she she declined to have food saying she was fasting 
Um, Bhagavan told her uh, fasting is not necessary. Bhagavan encouraged her to eat. And then Bhagavan happened to come across a piece of paper on which the Sanskrit original of this verse was uh, written. So since she didn't know Sanskrit, Bhagavan wrote this verse in Tamil, translating this verse. It's a very, I think the Sanskrit verse is a, is a well-known verse, and it happened to be printed on a piece of paper. It may have been even in a newspaper or something. Someone quoted it or on some piece of paper. Bhagavan found this verse, and so he translated it. The meaning of this verse is... Um, <clears throat> again, I think... Uh, Oh yeah, this this verse is in uh, is there are two sentences. So I'll read it sentence by sentence. The first sentence is sadhu sadhu kal galava. Sadhu kal means sadhu kal is the plural of sadhu. In other words, sadhus as a plural. Sadhkal aba means those who are sadhus. And as I said, sadhus means those who are uh, um, benevolent people, and which in this context refers to jnanis. So sadhukalaba, sahabasam, nanninal, inyayam elamum, ediku am. That means if one adheres to living with those who are sadhus, for what are all these? Uh, Nyayam, these restrictions. Um, that refers to things like uh, fasting and so on. Sorry, I, I actually, when I read that sentence, I was reading from the Ambayam, which is rearranged in prose order. In the, the, the order, the words come in the verses, Sadhukalaba, Sahavasam Nanninal, Edaku, Am, Inyayam, Elamum. So that implies if one adheres to living with those who are sadhus, um, uh, for what are all these nyayas? Sorry, niyamas. Niyamas. Did, niyamas. Niyamas. What did I say? It sounded like nyayas. Oh, sorry. I, I meant nyamas. Yes, nyamas. Uh, restrictions or disciplinary practices in the context in which Bhagavan. Uh, translated this verse, it, it was particularly referring to fasting, but it also refers to anything, anything else like um, any observances like yoga practices, ritual worship, mantra, japa, meditation, or anything other one from oneself. Uh, all these are, become unnecessary if we uh, if we um, adhere to living with. Um, Anyani. The, the word sahabasam literally means living together with. Again, it means uh, it, uh, it implies association. So, though the, um, the, the surface meaning is literally living together with Anyani, in other words, living in the physical presence of Anyani, it also we can interpret it figuratively or metaphorically to mean keeping our mind in association with him, then only we are truly living with him. Only when we hold him in our heart are we truly living with him. So it, it, we shouldn't think, oh, but, uh, Bhagavan is no longer physically present, so we cannot live with him. No, we can still live with him by uh, keeping him in our heart. Um, giving him a residence in our heart is residing with him.
Um, so keeping him always in our heart, you know, always having our mind fixed on him and his teachings. When such is the case, no other spiritual practices are necessary. The only spiritual practice that is necessary, if we have been, if we are fortunate to have come to Bhagavan and taken refuge in him, as he indicated in the previous verse, the only sadhana that is necessary is the sadhana of vichara. And that clear vichara will arise in our heart naturally to the extent to which we take refuge in him, to the extent to which we surrender ourselves to him, to the extent to which we dedicate our, our, our mind and heart to him and to following his path, to that extent the clear vichara will naturally arise in our heart. So when such is the case, why all these other restrictions or observances or disciplinary practices. That is the idea. And to illustrate that, um, the second half of the verse, uh, the second sentence of the verse gives an analogy which illustrates this. The, the second sentence is, Medica tan tendral maritum tan visave disri kondu that what that means is when the air of the excellent cool southern breeze is blowing you say what is the uh, purpose of having a fan that that is if when the, when a cool breeze is blowing we there's no need there's, there's no benefit in having a in fanning oneself with a hand fan is the idea here, visceri in, 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 fan implies a hand fan. Um, because this was all in the days before. Uh, later on, electric fans came in, but, but in the days, Virupakshi days, when Bhagavan composed this verse, and in the ancient days when the original Sanskrit verse was composed, there were no electric fans. So people used to fan themselves with a hand fan. But what is the purpose of having a fan? when a cool southern breeze is, is blowing. Uh, likewise, when, when we are in the cool southern breeze of the, the presence of a jnani, when Bhagavan is present in our life, what, why are any other um, uh, uh, restrictions or observances necessary? All that is necessary is that we dedicate ourselves to um, following the path that he has shown us. The path he has shown us is the path of bichar, of self-investigation and self-surrender. When, when, when we have come to him, no other spiritual practices are necessary. No other, um, like, we, there's no need for us to fast or to observe um, particular festivals or um, or to any type of disciplinary practices are unnecessary once we have dedicated ourselves to um, to uh, to Bhagavan. To, once we have dedicated our mind and heart to Bhagavan, nothing else is necessary. And when we when our mind is dedicated to Him, we are. And that is what he means by adhere by adhering to living with those who are sadhus. Those who are sadhus for us refers to Bhagavan. Living with him means always holding him in our heart, always uh, cherishing love for him, um, and um, 
doing our best to dedicate ourselves to following the path that he has shown us. Um, so I hope I um, explained these three verses adequately. Um, so if anyone has any questions they'd like to ask on these verses or on any other subject, uh, related subject, please do so. Thank you, Michael. Um, so Sadhu Association yeah, for, for 2023 and beyond would, would mean, uh, because Bhagavan is not, you know, in the body. Yeah. So it would mean um, reading his teachings and, and practicing them as much yeah, as possible. Yes, and just, just, just uh, cherishing love for Bhagavan and love not only for Bhagavan, not only for his outward form, I mean, it's nice to read stories about Bhagavan and everything and to think about Bhagavan. That's all good. That's a good way of associating with him. But the best way to associate with him is to, what was the purpose? Why did, why did Bhagavan come? Did he come just to be the subject of a story? Sadhguam often used to say, Bhagavan didn't come just to be the subject of a story. Bhagavan came to give us teachings, to show us the way to salvation. So the best way to associate with Bhagavan is to keep our mind dwelling on his teachings and trying to apply his teachings in our life. That is truly dwelling with Bhagavan. That is truly having sahabasam, having living with Bhagavan. So um, uh, another question I have. What first convinced you that Bhagavan was it? For you, Nana. When I read, when I read a, a poor English translation of Nana, it was it it was enough to convince me this is what I'm I've been looking for. And of course, when when we come across a teaching that appeals to us, uh, naturally we are attracted to the teacher. Who that is when when you're given a great treasure, you you can't but. Uh, have love for the one who has given you that treasure. So there's no greater treasure that we could be given than Bhagavan's teachings. Well, or more than Bhagavan, no greater treasure than having been given love for Bhagavan's teachings. Because there are many people, if you give them Bhagavan's teachings, it means nothing to them. They're not, they're not, they wouldn't be interested. So the real treasure is being given love for his teachings. Who is it who has given us? love for his teachings, only he has given us that love. So we can't help but love Bhagavan if we are drawn to his teachings. So Nanya convinced you that, that Bhagavan was um, an enlightened being or Jnani? I didn't even think of it in terms... I was looking for something. I was looking for some something to give some meaning or some purpose to my life. When I read Nana, it was very clear to me, this is, this is what I've been looking for. And naturally, uh, uh, I didn't even think of Bhagavan being an enlightened or being, I mean, I didn't even think on those terms. Um, Bhagavan had given this great treasure, so I was fully convinced Bhagavan is Bhagavan. <laughs> what, what more can I say? Even to say Bhagavan is enlightened or Jiva Mukta, or even this, none of these terms adequately um, adequately express the real greatness of Bhagavan. 
And the real greatness of Bhagavan, of course, we don't understand it at first. We we get some inkling at first when we're drawn to his teachings. But as time goes on, we become it becomes more and more clear to us the real greatness of Bhagavan. And I was also particularly fortunate, but by Bhagavan's grace, I was with Sadhuam for more than eight years, about eight and a half years. And Sadhuam had so much love for Bhagavan, it was infectious. So I, though there was love for my, in my heart for Bhagavan from the time when I first read Who Am I, um, that love grew more and more and more. That love was fanned into a raging fire by being in the presence of Sadhuam, whose love for Bhagavan was infectious. Whose so all-consuming love for Bhagavan was infectious. That was a cool southern breeze then that yes. was coming on you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Nothing else was required. So what should we, so, so you are fortunate to be with Sadhu Om. Um, and um, I remember when you were talking to Bangalore uh, group, um, um, you know, you, you said the most important thing I learned from Sadhu Om was devotion to Bhagavan. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I undoubtedly. And so how, how can we get that kind of devotion? That love can be given only by Bhagavan. Um, it, 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 it will arise in us naturally. If we are meant for this path, if we are meant for Bhagavan, we will automatically be drawn to him. And the more we try to follow his teachings, the more we study his teachings, the more that love will grow in our heart. If we are fortunate to know Tamil, uh, Sadwam has written hundreds and hundreds of songs and verses expressing his love for Bhagavan. So reading his songs and verses is also a very uh, powerful means to uh, uh, kindle that love in our heart. And also Murugana has written so many thousands and thousands of songs. So for, for, particularly for Tamilians are very, very fortunate because they have all the, the vast body of um, of Tamil literature by Bhagavan himself and by Murugana and by Sadhu Om, and um, well, these three mainly. Uh, these are available to, to those who know Tamil. For those of us, for those who do not know Tamil, still we've got Bhagavan's teachings. We've got uh, um, Bhagavan will have his own way of kindling in our uh, in kindling in our heart love for him. That's that's the work of grace, right? But we we can also by we. That is, grace is always present. We need to yield ourselves to grace. So the nature of grace is always to pull our mind inwards. So we can yield ourselves to grace most effectively by trying to turn our mind inwards. That is the most effective way of, um, of, of uh, developing love for our own being. And love for our own being is love for Bhagavan because Bhagavan is not just the outward form. Bhagavan is Satswarupa. He's the very, he's the very, his very nature is uh, Sat, 
pure being, Ulladu, that which is, and he's always shining in our heart as I am. So the more we try to turn within, the more we will have love, the more the love to turn within will grow in our heart. And that love to turn within is the purest love for Bhagavan, that love for that is love for Bhagavan in its purest form. Thank you, Michael. And we are trying to address this issue of language um, uh, being a barrier to appreciate Swami's Sadhuam songs um, by you know posting um, some of his songs with with translations, English translations. Yes. yes. Um, the goal is to also do translations in other languages as much as possible. Yeah. Um, so we you know we have like almost twenty six songs, and we'll, hopefully we'll get to fifty plus songs to, to yeah. get also the English speaking devotees. Um, the same, um, you know, Baba, the feeling yeah, that, yes, that, yes. that uh, uh, the Tamil mm. devotees would have. Mm. Would, uh, so, um, <laughs> someone says, um, uh, Michael had Sadhuam, we have you, not much difference, right? Do you agree? <laughs> well, it, it is true only in a certain sense. If you have a piece of ordinary iron and you attach it to a magnet, that ordinary piece of iron will act as a magnet. So it will draw other, others to it. So I, I am not a magnet, but, I, but, but magnetism is induced in me. Whereas Sadhuam was, had been, was permanently magnetized by Bhagavan, uh, for me, <laughs> the, it is only to the extent to which I keep my mind dwelling on Bhagavan, but I seem to be a magnet, even though I'm not a magnet. So there You're is happy. that difference, but in effect, it may be the same. You're happy with this magnet. <laughs> <laughs> that is, the, the, so long as the piece of ordinary iron is attached to the magnet, it will act as a magnet. But when it's separated, it becomes just an ordinary piece of iron again. I I am like that. So it's only by um, because Bhagavan had has bound me to him, has drawn me to him, and keeping me keeping a firm hold on me. But I may seem to be um, like a magnet, even though I'm far from being that. <laughs> uh, as I said, yeah, we're, we're we're still happy to have you. Um... So um, let's talk about Arunachala here. Um, how does um, associating with Arunachala, the physical form, I mean, the hill, Arunachala, um, in the context of these verses, help us? We can see from Bhagavan's life him, itself, Bhagavan used to love going round the hill, and he always encouraged others to go round the hill. That should be, whether we understand it or not, that should be sufficient for us. Um, uh, once, um, because Devaraja Mudliya, he had great love for Bhagavan, but he was also sometimes a little skeptical about things. So he, he once asked Bhagavan, uh, what is the use of going around this hill? And Bhagavan said, just like fire burns, whether you believe in it or not, this hill will do good to you if you go round it, whether you believe in it or not. That is the power of Arunachal. And Dr. Syed once said to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, why are you, 
I can understand your Advaita teaching, but I can't understand why you attach so much importance to this hill. What's so special about this hill? Then uh, Bhagavan asked, what drew you here? And Dr. Sayadaw, I wasn't drawn by the hill. I was drawn only by Bhagavan. And what drew your Bhagavan here? Yeah, <laughs> Bhagavan asked. So the power cannot be denied. Um, so the next question is, um, all devotees talked about the impact of Bhagavan's look, um, the spiritual energy that came from his eyes, the change that made, um, uh, you know, how high his physical presence took them. Even recent respected Swamis talked so highly of um, Bhagwan's physical presence. Would you please comment? Um, although Bhagwan said, where can you go? Yeah, uh, Bhagavan, well, firstly, the look of Bhagavan, Bhagavan is always looking at us. If we want to be aware of him looking at us, we need to look at him. He's very shiny in our heart as our own being. So we will, we, we can, we can, if we don't look at Bhagavan, we can't see that he's looking at us. So he's ever in our heart looking at us. So we need, if we want to see that he's always looking at us, we need to look within. Secondly, um, yes, many people have written about the power of Bhagavan's eyes. Um, and that's no doubt true, but um, there are um, so many who were looked at by Bhagavan, but the extent to which they were truly benefited by that, they may have felt the power of his look at that time, but then many of them just went away and lived their ordinary life. So we are not just looking for some, when we come to Bhagavan, we're not just looking for some temporary benefit. We are looking for the eternal benefit. And that eternal benefit can be got only by turning within and merging back within, uh, merging deep into the heart. Thank you, Michael. Um... So we should not think that Bhagavan is in any sense or any respect any less available to us now than he was when he was in when he was in physical form he is ever available to us because he's ever shiny in our heart as our own being i am uh, can i make a question yes i i am yes. unable to get over this mental block you know that bhagavan's plus nothing is equal to bhagavan's physical presence you know that so long as we take ourselves to be the body, it's natural for us to take Bhagavan to be the body. So if you want to get over this block, you need to get over the block of taking yourself to be the body. And you can get over that block only to the extent to which you turn within. So we need to follow Bhagavan's path. If we truly follow Bhagavan's path, we won't need convincing. It'll be very, very clear to us how very real is Bhagavan's presence in our life in every respect. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, um, Sandy. Um, Murti makes a comment, listening to and if possible chanting, Sri Arunachala Kshramana Mali deepens the love one has for Arunachala Ramana or Sat. Your comments. Uh, 
Yes, yes, certainly. Akshramla is it, that is Bhagavan poured his Bhagavan's whole heart was poured into Akshramla. So if we can if we can uh meditate on our on Akshramla, if we can dwell on our natural Akshramla in our heart, it is very, very powerful means to to uh to kindle love for Bhagavan and for following the path that Bhagavan taught us. Remember, following the path he taught us, it, uh, merely saying I have love for Bhagavan without following his path, it, our love for him is still very, very superficial. If we really have deep love for Bhagavan, we will follow the path that he showed us. So our, our love for Bhagavan can be measured by the extent to which we are truly following his path. <clears throat> this, of course, he alone can, he alone knows that, that is even we, uh, to us it seems, uh, to any, to any honest, genuine spiritual aspirant, it will, it will seem to us that we are not following his path nearly, we, we are trying to follow to some extent, but we are not following it, following his path sufficiently. So it will seem to us. But how much we are actually following his path is known only to him. Right. But the, the, the measure of our love for him is the, is the extent to which we dedicate ourselves to trying to turn within and thereby surrender ourselves to him. Thank you, Michael. Because um, love ultimately, true love, is not about getting anything. Love is about giving. If you truly love someone, you don't think what you can, what benefit you can get from that person. That's not true love for that person. If you truly love a person, what can I give to that person? So true love for God is giving ourselves to God. True love to, for Bhagavan is giving ourselves to Bhagavan, surrendering ourselves to him. And we can surrender ourselves to him only to the extent to which we turn within and merge back into our source, which is Bhagavan himself, our own being, I am. Thank you, Michael. Um, when Gopal requests um, you to comment on TMP Mahadevan, uh, uh, I think he's one of the devotees of Bhagavan, right? And, yeah, uh, TMP Mahadevan, he was a, a philosophy professor in Madras. He has, um, I mean, I don't know what, what I'm to comment on him. He has written a, a few books. He has translated the the question and answer version of uh, the 28 question and answer version of Nana was translated by TMP Mahadevan. Um, his translation, it's better than a lot of other translations, but there are many places where it's clear he doesn't really understand very deeply, though he's a, he's a very learned philosopher, or Possibly not, though he's a very learned philosophy professor, possibly because he's a very learned philosophy professor, he doesn't understand Bhagavan so deeply. For example, when Bhagavan talks about um, the, uh, um, in, in, in the essay version, it's in the third paragraph, in the question and answer, it's in the early questions and answers, uh, when uh, Bhagavan talks about 
he used Bhagavan used the word jnana drishti. Uh, jnana drishti means perception of the world. Um, uh, and um, TMP Mahad, and Bhagavan says, unless perception of the world ceases, um, uh, knowledge of the Adishtana, the base, uh, uh, Swarupa, our own real nature, will not shine forth. Instead of translating, um, I can't remember now how he's translated it, but instead of translating uh, Jagat Drishti, perception of the world, as as it is, as perception of the world, he says, um, uh, the belief that the world is real or something to that effect. That is not the point. Bhagavan, when Bhagavan talks about, I mean, TMB Mahadevan, he knows Sanskrit. He must know that Jagat Drishti means perception of the world. But because he's he's not able to grasp or fully accept the, the deeper teachings of Bhagavan, he translates them in a way to... Um, to um, I mean, I don't think he, I don't think he was being dishonest. I think he was, he, he, because he thought he can't mean literally perception of the world. It must mean something else. So he gave some other meaning to it. He's also written a, a commentary on Uludunapadu. But again, he's not really bringing out the, what, that Uludunapadu is an extremely uh, radical, revolutionary text. But he's explaining it only from the perspective of a, of a philosophy professor who's, uh, that, that is his, his speciality in philosophy, was a debater philosophy. But um, if you read some of the things he says, for example, um, I remember reading somewhere on some online source when his comment on Drishti Shishtivada, he said, this isn't the, this isn't the main uh, Advaita philosophy, this is not uh, accepted by Advaitins. Drishti Shishti Vada. But what Bhagavan is teaching in Uludunapadu is very clearly Drishti Shishti Vada. So I think, though he was a good devotee in his own way, I don't, and though he was very learned in philosophy and everything, I don't think he had the, the clarity, the, the inner clarity to really understand uh, Bhagavan's teachings deeply. But that's no due respect to him. I mean, he had devotion to Bhagavan, that there's no doubt about. And um, everyone is at different levels. So as Bhagavan said, according to the purity of the uh, antakarana, the, the, the mind, the heart, um, the same teaching reflects in different ways. So people understand things in their own way, according to their own uh, le level of understanding. So I, what what I'm saying here, I don't mean any personal comment on TMP Mahadevan, but I think we can see from his writings that he his his understanding of Bhagavan was not so very deep. Thank you, Michael. Um, so Malcolm asks, how do you imply vichara to move beyond mind to non-attached or non-conceptual awareness and into the silence of self? What is vichara? Vichara is turning our mind within. So long as the mind is going outwards, it is called mind. To the extent to which the mind turns within, it ceases to be mind and remains as pure awareness. So um, 
though mind is the instrument by which we practice vichara, as Bhagavan says, for example, in um, in the 16th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan gives a very clear and simple definition of vichara. Uh, Sadakalamum manate atma vil vetirupatikutan atma vicharam endrupaya. That means the name atma vichara refers only to always keeping the mind on oneself. Keeping the mind on oneself obviously means keeping the attention on oneself. When we, that is, in English, if we talk about putting your mind on something, it means attending to it in exactly the same way. The same, the same, uh, it, it's used in the same way in Tamil. So keeping our mind on something means attending to it. So the mind, so long as our attention is going outwards, um, it is mind as mind. To the extent to which our attention goes inwards, it ceases to be mind and remains as pure awareness. So vichara is the only way to go beyond mind as mind and to remain as the pure awareness that we actually are, the pure awareness I am. Is that a clear answer to that question, or would you like to ask anything more? Because Malcolm, does that answer your question? Yes, yes, it does. Okay. Very clear. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, so Mira asks, uh, who is aware of the changing minds, agitations, or thoughts, or emotions, etc.? Is that the pure awareness, the knowingness in us? No, no. Uh, that is only. It, that that is the knowing element of mind is what is called ego it's only in the view of ego that all this agitation is there so uh has, has, this is why bhagavan says in verse 26 of uludunapdu if ego comes into existence everything comes into existence if ego doesn't exist everything doesn't exist why does he say that because everything exists only in the view of ego. So everything includes the, the mind and its agitation and everything else. All states of mind are known only to ego. In the view of pure awareness, pure awareness means the awareness that we actually are, there is only pure awareness, nothing other than pure awareness. So is the ego aware? Is it ego aware of its own changing yes yes aspect. okay yes. thank you michael yes. yes thank you so much ego exists only in the view of ego in the view of pure awareness there's no such thing as ego right and we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking outwards yes. if we look within to try and find this ego as bhagavan says tedinal otum pidicum if sort it takes flight so yeah. if we look for this ego, mm -hmm. has anyone ever seen anything called ego? No. no, we seem to be ego only because we don't look at ourselves. As mm -hmm. Bhagavan said, the 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 causes abhichara. It's because abhichara means non-investigation. In other words, not attending to ourselves. It's only because of abhichara that we seem to be ego. Mm -hmm. If we turn our attention within mm -hmm. to see what we actually are, 
there's no such thing as ego to be found. All that we actually are is pure awareness. Yeah. It's just like if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, you can mistake it to be a snake only so long as you don't look at it carefully enough. If you yeah. look at it carefully enough, you'll see, oh, it's not a snake, it's only a rope. Likewise, we seem to be ego only because we don't look at ourselves carefully enough. Mm -hmm. yep. Because Thank what you. we actually always actually are is pure awareness. But that doesn't mean that pure awareness is knowing ego. It's only because we mistake ourselves to be ego, but we're aware of ourselves as ego. Mm -hmm. Truly speaking, there's no such thing as ego at all. And since there's no ego, there's no mind, no agitation, no world, no body, nothing. That's the ultimate truth. But in order to see that, we need to look deep within to see what we actually are. When we see what we actually are, we will see that we are pure awareness, which is eternal and immutable. So pure awareness never undergoes any change. Yes. So all change is only in the view of ego. Mm. The rising and subsiding of ego is only in the view of ego. Rising and subsiding of everything else is also only in the view of ego. But three states, waking, dream, and sleep, are only in the view of ego. Though ego exists only in two of those three states, yeah. the fact that there's a third state in which ego is absent is only in the view of ego. Because in the view of pure awareness, there's neither presence nor absence of ego. There's no such thing at all. So when ego is not there, who is aware of the third state? Who is that? What is that aspect that is aware of the third state? of What is no aware of the third, third state, state is the pure awareness that we actually are. But in the view of that pure awareness, it is not a third state. It is the only state. Only state, yes. Because in the view of pure awareness, there's no waking and dream. Yes. If waking and dream exist only in the view of ego. So yes. uh, wake, waking and dream exist in the view of ego. When ego is, the state in which ego is absent is what we call sleep. But yes. sleep is actually our eternal state. Mm. But because we seem to have risen from sleep as ego, sleep seems to be just one among three states, whereas actually it is the only state. So, so long as it is said to be, so long as it seems to us to be one among three states, Bhagavan says it is non-existent. There's a verse in later, when we go through Alinapriyanabandam, later on there's a verse in which Bhagavan, there's a term used in Sanskrit, you're probably familiar with it, uh, Churiya. Churiya, this, this term, the term Churiya is not used in um, the Mandukya uh, Upanishad. It, uh, there, I think it's called Chaturti, but it means the same. It means the fourth. Uh, Churiya became the popular term because in his karika, in his commentary on the Mandukya uh, Upanishad, um, Godapada used the word Churiya. Uh, but Churiya and Chaturti both mean the fourth. So Bhagavan, what Bhagavan says in that verse in Ulladunapadu and Bandham, uh, Get the verse, wait a second. What well, Bhagavan says in verse 32, um, for those who experience waking dream and sleep, waking sleep, which is beyond these, is called Churiya, the fourth. Since that Churiya alone exists, 
and since the three states that appear do not exist, be assured that Churiya is actually Churiya Tita. That, that, is, Churiya, that is our real state is called the fourth, though it's actually the only state there is. But in some texts, they also talk about Churiya Atita. Atita means beyond. So many people, particularly in certain schools of yoga, they say there are five states. There's Churiya, and beyond Churiya, there's Churiya Tita. Bhagavan is explaining here that Churiya itself is Atita. There's no Churiya Tita other than Churiya. Churiya is the, it's called Atita because it transcends the other three states. It's beyond the other three states. Um, so so there, there are no five states. There's actually only one state. That one state is what is called the fourth. When he says here that the three states that appear do not exist, the three states that appear mean waking, dream, and sleep. So in what sense does sleep not exist? From sleep as it appears from the view of ego is just one among three states. It is therefore a temporary state. So as such, it doesn't exist. But sleep is is the state in which ego is absent. So what remains in the absence of ego is only pure awareness, which is Churiya. So in the actual experience of sleep and the actual experience of Churiya, there's no difference. But when the, we the, different, the difference appears only from a perspective of ego, but seems to come up, have come out of sleep. And because ego has come out of sleep, and as ego, we are not aware that is what shines in sleep is only the pure awareness I am. But that same pure awareness I am is shining even now. But we don't experience it as it is, because instead of experiencing ourselves as pure awareness, we experience ourselves as um, I am Mira, I am Michael, mm -hmm. I am this person. So because that that ego is that false awareness, I am this person, mm -hmm. I am this body, that has has that obscures our awareness of ourselves as we actually are now. So because we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are now, we cannot recollect what we actually were in sleep, which is exactly the same thing. So the, our present ignorance obscures our recognition of our real nature in sleep. In sleep, there's no ego and therefore no non-recognition. There's only pure awareness. But now from the perspective of waking state, sleep seems to us to be a state. Um, well, the first defect in sleep is that we've come out of it. And secondly, because we are not as ego, we that is how is ego able to, how as ego are we able to remember that we existed in sleep? Yes. Because ego didn't exist in sleep. Exactly. Because ego, that is the essential, what ego essentially is, is just that fundamental awareness I am. But it happens to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts mm. to make it ego. But even when it's ego, that fundamental awareness I am is shining there. So we're able to, as ego, we're able to recognize that we existed in sleep. I, but we cannot. We 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 are 
even now we are aware that we are, we are not aware what we are because we mistake ourselves to be something other than what we are. Likewise, we, as ego, we can recollect, but in sleep we were, but what we were in sleep we cannot recollect because that's obscured by our present ignorance of ourselves. Okay. Okay. So for, when we talk about sleep as one of the three states, it doesn't exist. As Bhagavan says, none of these three states actually exist. But if we recognize the true nature of sleep, what actually remains in sleep is only that pure awareness, which is what alone always exists, and nothing else actually exists at all. So if we take sleep to be one of the three states, then it is unreal. If we recognize that sleep is our own natural state, our own real state, which is what is called Churiya, then it is that alone is real and we've never come out of it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, Michael, uh, 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 piling on to what Mira has just uh, mentioned. So yeah. if uh, the, the thoughts are coming and I ask the question, who are getting the thoughts? Um, and then I go to who am I? Then the question comes, who asked this question? So it kind of goes into a little bit of a loop. It's not a big problem for me. But it just kind of goes into the loop, and I'm trying to figure out uh, uh, if it's if it's something which is done improperly here in terms of self-attention. Whoever asked you to ask the question, "Who am I?" and to get yourself in that loop? Did Bhagavan ever tell us to ask, "Who am I?" Bhagavan didn't say, "Ask who am I." Bhagavan said, "Investigate who am I." Asking a question is a mental activity. That is not self-investigation. Self-investigation, as Bhagavan said, is always keeping our mind on ourself. In other words, being self-attentive, that alone is self-investigation. That is not a loop, that is a state of just being as we are. So if we, if we think that Atmavichara is asking questions, to whom is this thought, to me, who am I? We've missed the point. What, what's happened? Something's happened to a screen. I don't know. Anyway. Um, that, that, that helps. That helps. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. So um, the, uh, I don't know what's happening on the screen. Kumar, something funny is happening. Can you? Right. <laughs> it's a bit distracting, yeah. whatever it is. Um, yeah. Here too. Um, let me see. You could switch to gallery mode. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Come, okay. come back. So, back now. Yeah, someone yeah. Um, yeah, accidentally pressed something, which is... Okay. Um, so, um, sorry, that driver distracted me. Um, um, so, um, uh, Ram asked a question yeah, that uh, about, said that he's, he's going on a loop of questionings and yeah, you basically yeah. started by it, saying... It, we shouldn't start questioning at all. If you go on questioning, there's no end to questioning. But when Bhagavan said, investigate to whom, to me, who am I? What he meant by that is not asking a question, to whom is this thought, to me, who am I? 
and then wait for the next thought to come. To whom is this thought? To me, who am I? That is not what Bhagavan is talking about. What he me when he says investigate to whom the thought appears or to whom anything appears, that means turning our attention away from what has whatever has appeared back towards ourself, the one to whom it has appeared. So it's not a matter of questioning. So in order to explain it in words, Bhagavan said, if one investigates to whom, it will be clear to me. If one investigates who am I, what he meant by that is, when any thought appears, if we investigate to whom it appears, our attention will go back to ourselves because it, all thoughts appeared to me. To, uh, and if we hold on to that self-attentiveness, that is investigating who am I. So uh, the investigating to whom is turning our attention away from whatever has appeared back towards ourselves, the one to whom it has appeared. Investigating who am I is holding on to the resulting self-attentiveness. So, but the, the, the problem is this in 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 Nana, where Bhagavan explains that, the verb he uses is vichari. Vichari um in this context means investigate, but it's often been translated as inquire. And people take when we talk about inquire, inquire can have two meanings. Inquire can mean investigate, inquire can also mean ask questions. So many people take it to mean that Bhagavan was telling us to ask, who am I? In fact, in many books, it's recorded as if Bhagavan said, ask, who am I? In talks and such books, that often comes, ask, who am I? But Bhagavan wasn't saying, ask, who am I? He was saying, investigate, who am I? There's a big difference. If, if Bhagavan gives you a book and tells you, investigate what's written in this book, you don't just sit there holding a book in your hand, what is written in this book, what is written in this book. That is, you cannot find out what's written in the book merely by asking the question. If you want to find out what's written in the book, you need to investigate. You need to look, open the book and see inside. So when Bhagavan says, investigate who am I, he means look, look at yourself, turn your attention back towards yourself to see what you actually are. He didn't mean asking questions. So long as we're asking questions, we're floating on the surface of mental activity. That is not vichara. Vichara is turning our mind within and sinking deep into our, thereby sinking deep into the heart. That is to the extent to which we turn our mind within, ego will thereby subside, will sink back into the heart. That alone is vichara. It also says the same in, in one verse of Uludunapadu. Um, wait a second, let me just get it. Um, verse in verse twenty nine of Uludunapadu, he says, "Not saying I by mouth." That implies not only literally by mouth; it also implies figuratively. In other words, not saying I by mouth or even mentally, investigating by an inward sinking mind where one rises as I alone is the path of knowledge. The path of knowledge means the path of vichara. So he, he how he expresses it in Tamil, ul al, a manatal, 
nan endru ingu undum ena nadu delay nyana neriam. That means investigating, um, investigating where it, uh, it investigating by or with a sinking mind where one rises as I alone is jnana neri, the path of knowledge. And then he goes on to say, instead, um, thinking uh, uh, not this, I am that, is uh is uh, is an aid but is it in, is it vichara so vichara according to bhagavan is only keenly investigating ourselves the source from which we've risen as i and thereby sinking within that is vichara that that inward sinking cannot be achieved by simply by asking questions we, we can sink within only by turning our whole attention within and thereby subsiding back into the heart. Um, so I asked um, Ram if you want some more hard hitting from Bhagwan. Can you, he said he's ready. So can you quote uh, verse two of uh, Ekatma Panjagam, please? Oh, um, wait a second. I'll have to find that. What Bhagavan says in verse two is, um, um, that that means uh, uh, um, when when one when or even though one exists as oneself, uh, yeah, even though one exists as oneself, tan um, tan that oneself. Uh, one who asks oneself, uh, um, who am I? What place am I? Uh, such a one is equal to uh, uh, a drunkard who asks, um, Wait a second, sorry. Uh, it's equal to a drunkard who who mutters, "Who am I? What place am I?" So, um, Bhagwan is very, very clearly here indicating that is Bhagwan. This. Um, Ekama Panchakam, Bhagavan wrote in 1947. This is the last original verse work composed by Bhagavan. The only work he composed after this, I think in 1948 or so, I think he composed his Tamil translation of Atma Bodham. But this was the last original work of Bhagavan. And by that time, there was so many people had misunderstood Bhagavan's teachings and were thinking that they had to ask themselves, who am I? So to make it clear that that is not the practice, Bhagavan said this. It's not about asking who am I. It is about investigating who am I. Uh, in his comment on this verse, uh, Professor Swami Latin said, uh, here Bhagavan is poking fun at his own method. That is not the case. Bhagavan wasn't poking fun at the practice of self-investigation. He was 
He here he's poking fun at those who misunderstand his teachings and think that self-investigation is just about asking questions. It's not about asking questions, it's about investigating what we actually are. Right. Very clear. Very clear. Yeah. So now his drum says very clear. Good. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Bhagavan's oh. teachings are very clear, but we have to pay close attention to them and understand what he's actually saying. Okay. It's clear to those who, who, who think deeply about them, who make connections, then what Bhagavan is saying is very, very clear. If we, if we come with lots of confused ideas and through the filter of our confused understanding, we try to understand Bhagavan's teaching, then it'll just add to the confusion. That's why Sadhu Om often used to say, if, if you bring me a, a, a well-scribbled slate and ask me to write the beautiful name Ramana, I first have to wipe the slate clean, and then only I will write the beautiful name Ramana. Otherwise, if I write the name Ramana over all the already existing scribblings, It'll that beautiful name will get lost among the scribbling. It'll just become. It'll just add to the scribblings. To see the beauty of his name, you first need to wipe the state clean, clear, and then write his name. Likewise, if you come to Bhagavan with a mind, a well scribbled mind, if your mind is a well scribbled slate, we've got so many ideas and confusions and everything, and then you try and understand Bhagavan. You won't understand clearly. First, you need to wipe your mind clear of all the confusion. However, unfortunately, for those who come to Bhagavan and start by reading many of the English books, like talks and so on, there's already confusion there because they talk about things like asking, who am I, which is not what Bhagavan taught us. So, um, unfortunately, many of the English books just add to the confusion that people already come to. So that's why we need to go back to Bhagavan's own original writings, where he writes very, very clearly. But we need to understand what he means, and to understand it, we need to first be ready to jettison all our old ideas, all our former understandings. We may have read a lot, like someone asked, earlier about Professor T.M.P. Mahadevan. He was a very, very learned man. He, he had an international reputation as an expert on Advaita philosophy. But in spite of all his learning, he didn't have a deep understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, because Bhagavan's teachings are extremely deep and extremely radical. So it's best to come to Bhagavan knowing nothing, with a completely clean slate. Then only we and we should be ready to accept what Bhagavan says as he says it. That that is, uh, Bhagavan's teachings are extremely radical. We must be willing to accept what Bhagavan said. For example, in verse twenty six of Valudrunapadu, <clears throat> Bhagavan says, "If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence." If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. There are those who are not willing to accept this, <clears throat> who say, oh no, Bhagavan didn't really mean like that. What he would have meant is, if ego comes into existence, everything appears. If ego doesn't exist, everything uh, doesn't appear. 
But that is not what he says in Tamil. He says the words he uses in Tamil are extremely clear. Ahandey undayin means if ego comes into existence. Anatum uh, undahum, everything comes into existence. So if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. So he's not talking just about the appearance of ego. He's talking, sorry, he's not just talking about the appearance of other things. He's talking about the existence of other things. They come into existence only when ego comes into existence. Why? Because they exist only in the view of ego. Then in the next sentence, he makes it even more clear. <clears throat> if ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Indru means it doesn't exist. So there's no ambiguity at all there. Bhagavan is completely unambiguous. So that verse <clears throat> cannot be reasonably interpreted in any other way. If anyone tries to interpret it in any other way, they are trying to twist or, or, or misrepresent what Bhagavan is saying. So we need to ask ourselves, are we ready to accept such teachings? If we are not ready to accept such teachings, we will not understand Bhagavan correctly. In order to understand him correctly, we need to accept what he says. So it's up to us whether we accept it or not. But if we want to be truly benefited by Bhagavan, um, uh, we, we, uh, we need to accept his um, what he taught us as he taught it. We need to take Bhagavan's teachings at face value. Yes, sometimes Bhagavan talks metaphorically, but we need to understand when he's talking metaphorically and when he's talking literally. And when he's talking metaphorically, we need to understand what if, what he intends to say by that metaphorical expression. Um, Thank you, Michael. I saw something, there was some comment from Mira about we are a mixture of ego and the truth or something. Yeah. So before going there, it, so it, I wanted to clarify. Um, yes. Okay. Um, on the same point you just mentioned. So, um, so Bhagwan, what he taught was metaphysical solipsism, but what these folks are interpreting it as epistemologic solipsism. Is that is that right? That's one way of putting it. Yes. They, yes. Okay. Yes. You can say it like that. Um, but the solipsism Bhagavan taught is a very refined solipsism. Because the solipsism is is a very much misunderstood and maligned term in uh, in um, in philosophy generally and generally, Bhagavan isn't saying um, that is the analogy Bhagavan uses to illustrate this is dream. It's not just an analogy. It is, Bhagavan says, our present state is just a dream. So if we think about a dream, in a dream, there is only one dreamer. And the dream exists only in the view of that one dreamer. However, in a dream, we always take ourselves to be a person in the dream. The person we take ourselves to be in a dream is not the dreamer. The dreamer mistakes itself to be a person in the dream. So what is seeing the dream is only the dreamer, namely ego, not the person we seem to be. Because we seem to be a person in the dream, it seems to us 
I, this person, am seeing the dream. But it's not this person who's seeing the dream, it's only the I that is aware of itself as I am this person that is seeing the dream. So, some people say, um, then does that mean that um, all the other people are unreal? Uh, they're all a mental projection. No, it doesn't. It does mean that, but it doesn't only mean that. Even the person you take yourself to be in the dream is as unreal as all the other person, people. So long as you're looking outwards, so long as you're interacting in the world, you take yourself to be a person. It's the person who is interacting in the world. So, so long as you take yourself to be that person, that person seems to be real. So every other person seems to be real. So, so long as we are looking outwards, for all intents and purposes, there are a multiplicity of jivas, a multiplicity of egos. That is, because we as ego take ourselves to be a person, we take every person to be an ego. So it seems to us but every other person is seeing this world and interacting with this world just as we are. So, for all intents and purposes, we behave in this world as if there are a multiplicity of egos. Every person is an ego. So it seems to be. And so, so we should, we beha should behave in this world as if every other person is an ego like ourselves. But... <laughs> That is because we take ourselves to be a person. So long as we take ourselves to be a person, obviously there's a multiplicity of people. But we need to, in order to get to the truth underlying this dream, we need to recognize there is actually only one dreamer. Only the one dreamer is perceiving that dream world. That one dreamer perceives itself as a person and perceives so many other people. The person it perceives itself to be is as much a mental projection as every other person. So there's nothing special about this person we, we take ourselves to be. So long as we're taking ourselves to be this person, this person is one among so many billions of people. And people means not only human people. Other, other animals, um, cows and dogs and cats and horses and elephants and giraffes and so on, they're also a people like us. They also, um, to all intents and purposes, they are perceiving this world as we are. They have their own personalities, they have their own characteristics, their own likes and dislikes and everything. So people means not only people in human form, people in all so many different forms. So all that seems to be true so long as we take ourselves to be this person. So long as we're looking outwards, we should act in this world as if there's a multiplicity of jivas. But in whose view does this person we take ourselves to be and all these other people exist? Only in the view of ourself, the dreamer, this ego. So for getting to the... Uh, for, for, for getting... Underneath the surface of all this, we need to accept that there's only one ego, and only in the view of that one ego, all these other egos seem to exist. Then we need to investigate who is this, who am I, this one ego, in whose view all these, this world and so many egos seem to exist. When we investigate who am I, this one ego, we find that there's actually no ego at all. What we actually are is just pure awareness. 
So for practical, for, for the practice of self-investigation, we are taught that there's just one ego. That is, in order to make us turn within to investigate who am I, this one ego, in whose view all these exist. None of these things exist when I do not rise as ego. They seem to exist only because I rise as ego. So who am I, this one ego, in whose view all this multiplicity seems to exist? When we turn our attention within to find out who am I, this one ego, we find there's no ego at all. What we so actually it's a qualified are, solipsism. Hmm? So it's a qualified solipsism. I wouldn't even say that. I would say this is the very deepest solipsism. But it is solipsism that is to be applied only by turning within. So long as we are turning outwards, we should not apply solipsism. We should not apply solipsism in our interaction with the world. Because what is interacting with the world is the person whom we seem to be. And that person is just one among so many other people. You, you nailed it there, Michael. Um, so I, personally, I, this is one point that I had a lot of struggle with. Um, you know, I was getting the, the you know, the, up to that epistemology solipsism, I got it. So, and then I also wondered what right, what right do I have to say there's no such thing as Michael? You know, um, so <laughs> that was a If there's Kumar, there's Michael. Right. But I also, I also thought that, you know, how can I say that only Kumar's ego exists, you know, that, um, that Michael doesn't exist or the world doesn't exist. But then when I really got it was, as you said, when I, when, during practice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really difficult to put it on words. When yes, you, when yes, you, yes. You practice and, deeper and deeper and that's when and, this thing really started sinking in. And it's not Kumar's ego and Michael's ego. Yeah, exactly. That is, it is ego's Kumar. Ego takes itself to be Kumar. Right. So ego doesn't belong to Kumar. Kumar belongs to ego. The ego has taken Kumar as I am Kumar. Right. And no, so long as you are Kumar, there are so many other people. And every person seems to be an I just like you. So I think for, for, for all interaction with the world, we should not apply Ekajiva Vada. That is a misapplication of Ekajiva Vada. As far as our interaction with the world is concerned, we should interact with this world on the basis of Nana Jiva, many, many uh, uh, variety, uh, many Jivas. So Nana Jiva Vada is to be applied in our interaction with the world. Ekajiva Vada. Nana Jiva Vada means the contention that there are many Jivas. Yes, we should act in the world as if there are many Jivas, because for all intents and purposes, so long as I am this person, then every other person is an I. But for investigating who am I, we, that is where we need to apply Ekajiva Vada, solipsism, the, the contention that there's just one Jiva. That's only when we turn within. And if we investigate who am I, this one Jiva, this one ego, we will find there's no such thing as ego or Jiva at all. What actually exists is our own real nature, but pure such it that we actually are. Exactly. Um, so it's a practice that's going to sort of really yeah, help. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of um, quick questions here. Um, I have a question for Michael. May uh, I? 
Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Clearly one question because I have two when more. The, when the truth I or the real awareness is such it, that means awareness, right? So you're aware of something, right? Awareness, aware of? Not aware of. Oh, Chit is, is pure awareness. Pure awareness is just aware. It's not aware of anything. In, okay. order, in order to be aware of something, you need to be aware. But in order to be aware, you don't need to be aware of anything. So in the presence of awareness, that existence. Is the, yeah, the satchit is the existence awareness. Okay. That is the pure existence, the pure being and the pure awareness. In the view okay. of satchit, there is no other. So there's nothing to be aware of. Okay. There is just awareness. In sleep, we are aware without being aware of anything. We, in sleep, we're just aware I am. We're not aware of anything. Because there's nothing other than ourselves for us to be aware of. Being aware of things, that is, called, that is ego. What is aware of things is ego. That but is when I wake up, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but when I wake up, I say I slept like a log. I slept like a baby. Yes. So Th That's all your description of it from a waking state. But in, in sleep, you, you don't think I'm sleeping like a log, I'm sleeping like a baby. In sleep, all you know is your own being, I am. So you're not oh. aware of anything, you are just aware. But ego aware. was not there in sleep, so how was the ego able to say I slept like a log? Ego as ego was not there in sleep. But ego as it really is, as I am, was there. Oh, but, okay. Thank you. I am is not ego, but yeah. ego, that, that is, e, there are two elements that make up ego. The, okay. the ego is chit granti. There's the okay. chit element and the jada element. The chit element, chit means a pure awareness, that's the pure mm -hmm. awareness I am. Mm -hmm. The jada element is the body. Jada means oh. it's not aware. So the body is not aware. Mm -hmm. So it's an ego is a conflation of these two uh, completely contrary elements. One is aware, one is not aware, but they're conflated together okay. as I am this body. Okay. So in this ego is that that which is aware of itself as I am this body is ego. Yeah. In that awareness, the I am portion is such it is a pure yeah. awareness. Got it. So earlier you had written some, some comment, we're a mixture of ego and truth. No. Mm. Ego is a mixture of satchit and okay. a body. Got it. It, it is neither, as Bhagavan makes clear in verse 24 of Uludunapadu, it is neither the body nor is it satchit. Jada udal nanenadu, the insentient body, the, the, the jada body does not say I. When he says it does not say I, that's a metaphorical way of saying it is not aware of itself as I. Why is it not aware of itself as I? Because it's not aware, it's jada. Satchit udiyadu. Satchit does not rise. But in between, one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. That, because it rises, it's not satchit. Because it's aware, because it's I, that means it's an awareness, it's not the body. So it's neither satchit nor is it the body, but it borrows the 
properties of both. It borrows its existence and its awareness, in other words, its I-ness, yeah, from yeah. Satchit. And it borrows it, but its form from a body. Body. But it is neither of them. Neither. Then he goes on to say, this is Chit Jadagranti. But chit portion is satchit, I am. Mm. But jada portion is uh, is body. body, body. But that, though we say it's a combination of these two, we need to understand that is ego is actually not chit, nor is it jada. It is the granti. It is the not formed by the entanglement of these two. So it's neither chit nor is it jada. But it's mm-hmm. a, it, it's a, it's a conflation of the two. Thank you. So it's neither pure awareness nor is it the body, but the reality of ego, where ego get that is what how ego seems to exist, how it seems to be aware, because it derives its seeming existence and its seeming awareness mm-hmm. from the real existence and mm-hmm. real awareness of ourself yeah. as such it. Yeah. Yeah. So gratitude to that truth. So ego can have an attitude of gratitude, that means. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. Yes. That is that truth, that satchit, our own being, I am, is what has appeared outside in the form of Bhagavan to give us these teachings in order to turn our attention back within so that we should merge back in him. So the real gratitude to Bhagavan, the real gratitude to satchit, is to turn within and merge into that. So long as we continue rising as ego, we are not truly grateful to Bhagavan. We are not truly appreciating the great treasure that Bhagavan has has brought us. Thank you, Michael. Um, So, um, uh, Michael Fenton, did you, uh, were earlier questions answered or did you want to have any other questions to ask? I know you were, of course, similar to Mira's. Um, no, yeah, I think uh, Michael covered it quite well. Yeah, thanks very much, Michael, for clearing all that up. Okay. I especially like the dream analogy when you pointed out that the, the I that you think you are in the dream is just as false as all the other characters in the dream. That I think is not, not the I. The I, well, the, no, no, the, but I mean the person, the, the person you, you think, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, the I, mixed, if, if, the I mixed with person in yeah, the dream, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, 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 so yeah. The false I in the dream is just as false as all the other people in the dream. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really key. That's really yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Otherwise, if I think all these other people are my mental projection but I am this person, I am giving greater degree of reality to this person than to others. That is egotism. Yeah. So that's the very opposite of what Bhagavan is teaching us. No, I, I just, like I put in a comment that like the, the, the ego is just like, it's just a thought. It's just an ignorance thought. It's that yeah. I could be separate from all that exists. Brahman, yeah. uh, God, whatever you might yeah. want to call it. That the, is, by rising as ego, we limit ourselves to the extent yeah. of this body, as Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Uludhanapadu. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Michael. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jay, last question. Go ahead. Namaskar, Michael. Namaskar. Um, 
I just want to ask you about uh, holding on to myself. Um, um, me as Jay, I, I am experiencing uh, quite of uncertainty, losing the job and trying to be a doer, doer in the world and trying to figure out what to do and all of that. Um, while this is happening, um, uh, just holding on to the the actual essence as I am, as the practice. Yes. Um, is that is that is? I just want to know about the process of just holding on to my myself while. Um, okay. Um, well, I do have demand, demands, right, <laughs> as the body. Yes. Yeah. First thing to understand, it is not Jay who is experiencing the world. Mm -hmm. What is experiencing the world is the I that is aware of itself as I am Jay. What is in other words, the I that experiences itself as I am Jay is ego. That is what is experiencing all this. Jay is Jada. That is the person we take ourselves to be. Person consists of what? Body, life mind, intellect, and will. These are the panchakosa, the five sheaths. Mm -hmm. These are all jada. They're all objects known by us. This body is an object known by us. The life, the prana, the breathing, and the heartbeat, and everything, these are, these, this is an object known by us. The mind, all the perceptions, thoughts, feelings, memories, uh, memories, emotions, and so on. These are all objects known by us. The workings of the intellect are, are, are objects known by us. The will, all the, uh, in its grosser form, the will is all the likes, dislikes, desires, and attachment. The subtler form of the will is the vasanas, which are the seeds that give rise to all these things. They're all objects known to us. Vasanas means inclination. When we have an inclination towards this or that, we're aware of it. It's something known by us. So all these five sheaths are objects known by us. They're all jada. What is aware of them is ego. The one who is aware of itself as I am these five sheaths. Though it's aware of itself as itself as these five sheaths, this bundle of five sheaths, that is. It's not aware of itself as five different things. It's the whole, the whole bundle is what we experience as I. The whole bundle is the person we take ourselves to be. That person is Jada. The I that is aware of itself as I am this person is what is aware of all of this. So our aim in Atmavichara is to hold on to I alone and thereby separate ourselves from these, uh, from these adjuncts. That is, this person is not clinging to us. We are clinging to the person. We are saying, I am this person. This person isn't saying, I am this. <laughs> that this person is Jada. So it cannot, it cannot grasp us. It's we who grasp it. So if instead of grasping the person we seem to be, and take, thereby taking that person to be ourselves, if we try to grasp the I alone, in other words, we try to grasp our own being, because we, to the extent to which we grasp our being, we are thereby letting go of other things. So to the extent to which we hold on to ourselves, the adjuncts will drop off. And if we hold on to ourselves firmly enough, the adjuncts will subside and the pure I alone will remain. So our aim is just to 
attend to I. That is not to the person we take ourselves to be, but to be essential I in the mixed awareness, I am this person. So in other words, we are by holding on to I, we are separating ourselves from this person. So the deeper we go in this practice, the more clearly we will become aware of the distinction between ourselves and the person whom we now seem to be. We still seem to be this person, but we become more and more aware of I as something distinct from this person. But it's, though it's still conflated, the, the distinction between the two becomes clearer and clearer the deeper we go in this practice. And the clearer that distinction becomes, the deeper we are thereby able to go in the practice. So I just is, is that clear? Uh, so, um, so when I hold on to my own being, um, yeah. the the ego, the one that's um, to whom this is all happening, yes, becomes clear that it's actually true. I, yes, yes. But as soon as ego experiences itself as the pure I, it ceases to be ego and remains as the pure I. Because yeah. ego is the impure eye, the adjunct mixed eye, the adjunct conflated eye. So to the extent to which we hold on to our being, um, adjuncts drop off and eventually the pure eye alone will remain. As soon as we as ego experience ourselves as that pure eye, we cease to be ego and re we remain as pure, the pure eye. That is how ego is annihilated. Um, so in my experience, um, I when I hold on to myself, um, I directly like. I don't see any like. I directly go into being. Yes, yes, yes. Because there's no such thing as ego. Bhagavan yeah. says, if you look for ego, you won't find it. So what yeah. will you find in place of ego? Just if you, my own. If you it's look terrible. carefully at the snake, you won't find any snake there. You'll yeah. find only a rope. Okay. So the jadas, jad, I don't know what the jada means. So jada, are... mean, jada means non-aware. Non-aware. Non-non-aware, insentient. What is not aware is jada. Oh, okay. That, that is ego. Yeah. So jada is the opposite of of awareness. No, okay. ego is not jada. Ego is chit jada granti. It is a not formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. Chit means awareness. Jada means non-awareness. Okay. But e e that is ego is that which is aware of itself as I am this body. In in that in that mixed awareness, the the I am is the pure awareness. That yeah. is the real awareness. That is the chit portion of ego. The body is uh, is jada. It's non-aware. It's an object. Um, so what happened, like, when I am having these challenges in life, um, when I hold on to myself, so that that's the only practice is to hold on to myself and yes, forget yes. about the work. Yes. The, the, why, the are you, why are you having challenges in your life? Because you take yourself to be Jay. Mm -hmm. The pure eye is not having any challenges. The pure eye is, is free of all this. It's because of our identifying ourselves as a person that we have so many problems. Uh, 
And as a person, we problems are inevitable <laughs> because as a person, we take ourselves to be this body and we need food, we need clothing, we need shelter. Um, we get sick, we get old, we die. All these problems are there. In, problems are inevitable so long as we are embodied, so long as we identify ourselves as a, identify a body as ourselves. So yeah. in order to free ourselves from the problem, we need to free ourselves from the person for whom all the problems exist. Yeah. So uh, I just want to clarify this one thing. So w when I get entangled in 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 in, in ego and uh, and yeah. being confronted with with the adjuncts, yes. When I return to the place of stillness, yes. Um, I directly go into being there. There is like all the story ends, and I just rest yes, in that yes, stillness. Yes. Is what in, is my experience? All the story becomes irrelevant because yes. only only the pure being exists, yes. and there is no such thing as trying to find. Like there is no ego in that. So so the only practice is to return to my yes. true state. Our, our being. Yeah. Alone is the true refuge. Yeah. If we want to escape from all the miseries of life, all the troubles of life, the only refuge we can find, we cannot find any refuge in the external world. We can find refuge only in our own being. So we need to surrender to our own being by holding fast to it and thereby merging back and remaining just as being. Yeah. So the doer trying try to do actions also vanishes in that. Yes, yes. Just... The actions are done by three instruments, mind, speech, and body. Mm. So long as we identify this mind, speech, and body, this person who has the mind, speech, and body, so long as we take that person to be I, then I am doing all these actions. I am thinking, I am speaking, I am sitting here, I'm shaking my head or whatever is happening. All these why I feel I am doing these because I'm identified with this with yeah. this bundle of five sheaves called Michael. Mm. But this is not what I am. So if I want to separate myself from this bundle, I have to hold on to my own being. Then mm. this bundle, then I will stop holding on to this bundle as if it were myself. Since I'm no longer holding on to it, it will drop off of its own accord. Mm. So clinging to our own being is the only way to save ourselves from this vast ocean of samsara, of mm. embodied existence. Well, I would say that I have, I have been um, able to cling, cling to myself, but the um, outwardness of, of ego has been strong while, yes, while I'm yes. facing my life challenges at the yes. moment. But and, so long as there's an I to say, I have been able to cling on, hold on to my being, we haven't yet held on to our being firmly enough. When we hold on to our being firmly enough, the I that rises to say, I am, I am holding on, will merge, and then only the pure I will remain. Yeah. And the pure I will never say, I have, I have held on to my being, because the pure I just is as it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I guess um, 
that that's the question I have. Yeah, yeah, and all this becomes clearer and clearer to the extent to which we put this into practice, where mm -hmm. true clarity can be gained only from within. And to gain that clarity from within, we need to persevere in this practice of self-investigation. Mm. So Bhagavan's teachings and Bhagavan's path are so, so simple, but we just need the love to dedicate ourselves to them. Um, thank you, Michael. There's one more question here. For one second. Oh, go ahead. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for this enlightening talk. Um, I have uh, realized the theory and the fact that we are ego, which has to be separated to the purpose of it being to separate the ego from the, to recognize the pure awareness, yes. which is appearing as this confused ego. Yes. So uh, example being the screens not getting wet when there is a waterfall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if I ask myself, uh, if I if I practice this purely as an awareness, and I understand that the awareness is not upset, it is the awareness of being upset does not mean that the awareness is upset, or the awareness of being angry does not mean that the awareness is angry, and so therefore to separate out the ego from pure awareness so one way would be to say is let us say i'm i'm experiencing some sadness or then if i ask myself is the awareness sad or or if there is an argument or there's some confusion in my mind and if my mind is confused in arguing and if if i ask my awareness what does the awareness have to say about it or whether the awareness has any point of view onto it. And you realize that you get a taste where there is nothing, that the awareness has got no opinion or no agreement or disagreement to the question. In other words, you're just a witness. And that is you, not what you think yourself to be are you are you understanding what i'm trying I, to say? i'm understanding what, I'm trying to, what I'm you're trying saying to get a taste i'm trying to get yeah. a taste for the awareness okay. without that is when we talk about awareness we need to distinguish pure awareness which is what right. we actually are from the adjunct conflated awareness that we now seem to be right. that which is aware of anything of sadness or anything else is ego. So well, that we're aware of. Yes. So it's only as ego that we're aware of sadness. So long as we are aware of anything, that is not pure awareness. But pure awareness is not aware of anything. The pure awareness just is. That is, pure awareness means the awareness I am. It's not aware of anything. So, so long as we are aware of anything, we who are aware of that are ego. Our aim is to know what we actually are, because what we actually are is not aware of anything. So what we are trying to do is to hold on to the essential awareness, the awareness I am. That is the one 
thing that always exists and shines is the awareness I am. Now in the waking state, we're aware I am. In dream, we're aware I am. In sleep, we're aware I am. Awareness of all other things comes and goes. Awareness of all other things comes only when we identify when we rise as ego and thereby take ourselves to be a person, a body. So our aim is to hold on to our being, to the essential awareness I am, to the extent to which we hold on to that, in other words, to the extent to which we attend only to our own being, we thereby separate ourselves from everything else. So the sadness and everything, these will continue to affect us so long as we rise as ego. In order to avoid rising as ego, we need to cling to our being. To the extent to which we cling to our being, this rising I, called ego, will subside, and thereby we separate ourselves from all these things. But the, the witness, the term witness, is used a lot in Vedanta, but in Dvaita Vedanta. Bhagavan said we need to distinguish two senses in which the term witness is used. When witness is used to mean that which is aware of all this, that witness is ego, because it's only in the view of ego that all these things appear. However, in many texts, it is said that Brahman is the witness. Brahman is sometimes described as a jiva sakshi, a witness of the jiva or sarva-sakshi, the witness of all. But there, that in, when it's used in that, when, when Brahman is described as a witness, it doesn't mean that Brahman is aware of all of this. Brahman is not aware of jiva. Brahman is not aware of the world. Brahman is aware only of itself. So there, Bhagavan said, in that sense, sakshi means sanadi. Sakshi is a, it's a Sanskrit word that means witness, but it's a term that is generally used. And sanadi means presence. So witness there means presence. So when it is said Brahman is the witness of everything, it means everything happens in its presence. Just like the screen is the presence on which everything appears. Without the presence of the screen, no picture would appear there. But this picture, as you said, is not affected. The picture is not affected by the water. It's not affected by the fire. So Brahman is the witness in the same way, but the screen is the witness of the... Um, the screen is the presence on which the picture is projected. But the, the screen is not aware of the picture. But the witness that is aware of all this is ego. So we need to distinguish two senses in which the word, in which this term witness is used. I see. Okay. Well, I was trying to sort of get a taste of questioning the witness of an event. Uh, let's say the witness is supposed to witness something, let's say good or bad. That, that witness is ego. Is the ego. But if, but, I, ask the, if I ask the witness... If I, if I question whether that witness itself has been affected by the event, mm. I realize that the witness is unaffected. The witness is Only certainly affected. So long as you're so long as you're aware of anything, you're affected by it. If you're aware of sadness, 
No, no, no. It's Sa- purely Sa- theoretical. Sa- purely no, theoretical. But, not, but, not... but this is a very practical path. We shouldn't talk theoretically. We 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 need to be practical. Otherwise, if we just if we just no, talk no, I'm talking things, about when I meditate, when I meditate, or but when, when you I meditate, to... this is what I'm getting to. Uh-huh. That is why it is said, but we have a witness. It doesn't mean that we should be witnessing what is happening. It means that we we are said to be the witness in order to help us distinguish ourselves mm-hmm. as the knower from all that is known. Yes. The knower is the witness, everything else is, is what is known. In order to investigate ourselves, we need to we need to distinguish ourselves from everything that we know. So we are not anything that we know. We are not this body, this mind, or anything. These are all objects of our awareness. So we need to hold on to a knower. When we hold on to a knower, the knower thereby subsides. So the knower is the witness in the sense of the witness, but is knowing all this. So we we if we just imagine, I am I am um I am not affected by all these things. That is simply a bhavana. That is simply a, a mental process. That will not take us very far. But, but when it is said you are a witness, that means you should attend only to yourself, not to anything else. It's only by attending to yourself that you can separate yourself from all this. Thank you. Yes, at, at, at a, a mental level, we can try to detach ourselves by saying, oh, oh, this sadness is something other than me. So we try and put some distance, but we can't truly separate ourselves from that without turning our attention back towards ourselves to see who am I who feels so sad? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we are not attending to the sadness, we are attending to the I, but the one who experiences that sadness. And thereby we merge back into our being. So the whole aim of this practice of Abhmavichara is to separate ourselves. We can't separate ourselves. It's not just an imaginary separation. It's not just imagining I'm deta- I'm a detached witness. None of these things are affecting me. That's a that's a mental process. And we're not, we, of course, we, when we feel sad, we feel sad. We, we can't say, oh, uh, the sadness. I mean, we, we can, we can, it, it's a process of manana, of reflection, to understand the sadness is something experienced by me. I, the experiencer of the sadness, and something other than the sadness. That helps, that, that thinking in that way helps us to put some conceptual distance between ourselves and the sadness. But that isn't actually that that's only conceptually we made that distinction. That making that distinction is necessary because we our aim is to hold on only to ourselves, not to anything that we are aware of. So we we need to that's why, as I say, we are it is said, but we have a witness to, to make us understand we are not anything that we are experiencing. We are the experiencer of all these. This is what in in Advaita Vedanta is called Drik Drisya Viveka. Drik is the, the seer, literally means seer, but it means the experience of a perceiver. Drisya means whatever is seen or whatever is experienced or perceived. We need to 
distinguish the seer from the seen in order to investigate who am I the seer. So the, the, the conceptual understanding is necessary, but the conceptual understanding is not the investigation. That, but that if we need to make that distinction in order to understand that what we need to investigate is only our self, the knower, the witness, not anything else. So then we need, once we've understood that, we need to turn our attention away from everything that is known back towards our self, the knower. When we do so, the knower will thereby subside and merge back into the pure being that we actually are. Thank you. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya.